always done and always will. Welcome to this week's edition of New York Now. I'm Chantel Destra. This week, Governor Kathy Hochul delivered her 2024 State of the State address, complete with her vision and framework for the year. The governor was joined by legislative leaders, elected officials, and political stakeholders for the address inside the assembly chamber. Thank you and good afternoon. It's an honor to be back with you in this hallowed chamber, a place where since 1879, civic-minded New Yorkers wrestled with everything from the Great Depression to world wars to the everyday issues that matter most to the millions of people who call New York our home. Generations of past leaders have shared the solemn responsibility of representing their citizens, and I'm honored to be joined by the leaders of today. The speech itself was largely focused on crime, health, and protecting consumers. On crime, the governor shared plans to expand the definition of hate crime, address retail theft, and combat domestic violence. Building on her mental health plan from last year, Hochul also plans to focus on youth mental health and tackle the issue in the criminal justice system. The governor also focused on maternal health and said she was committed to improving the health workforce and outcomes. And on affordability, the governor proposed protecting New Yorkers from medical debt and eliminating co-pays for insulin. Now let's get to the most important issue when it comes to affordability. You ready? Okay. The obscenely high cost of rents and mortgages caused by the unconscionable shortage of housing in New York. You know, it's one of the, it's one of the forces driving people out of every corner of our state. And out-migration is a problem we need to talk about. After last year's housing fight, Hochul still plans to focus on supply and shared a less ambitious plan, now largely focused on housing units at state sites and a replacement for the expired 421A tax abatement program. It is important to note the speech was a presentation of a larger 180-page state book that gives even more details outlining the governor's plans for the year. We'll link to it on our website. Our team was on the ground at the Capitol during and after the State of the State. We caught up with several lawmakers on both sides of the aisle to get their reactions to the speech. It was a busy day at New York State Capitol as Governor Kathy Hochul delivered her 2024 State of the State address. After the speech, the common sentiment among state lawmakers was, this is just the beginning, as stakeholders await the governor's executive budget, which is expected to be released next week. One of the lawmakers waiting is Assembly Republican Minority Leader William Barclay, who noted both the tone and setting of the address when asked by reporters. Well, so it was sedate, I thought. I'm happy it was in the assembly chambers. I mean, compared to Cuomo, I almost appreciate it wasn't so much of a uh, show. It was more, you know, a speech. I, devil's in the details. we got to see what she's proposing, you know. Um, so we'll see. I, yeah. In a press release, State Senate Republican Minority Leader Rob Ort took aim at Democrats for policy stances. For example, the governor's approach to the ongoing migrant crisis. 
New York City Mayor Eric Adams, who has been vocal about the need for state and federal aid to help the city as it's seen an influx in asylum seekers, told reporters after the address he was looking forward to the executive budget to see how Hochul planned to address the crisis this year. Uh, this is going to be important uh, next week when we talk about the budgetary issues. We all know the asylum seeker issue is impacting all of our communities, and we, we, we're looking forward to hear um, how we're going to have some real uh, budgetary response uh, uh, to that. State Senator Zellner Myrie, a Democrat whose district includes much of central Brooklyn, offered support for one of the focal points of the governor's address. The focus on mental health in particular was something that resonated pretty strongly with me. It's something that our communities are going through right now. So I'd like to hear that. But Myrie also noted there was still more to be revealed in the upcoming budget. Once we get some more information uh, when the budget is released next week, I look forward to having these conversations in earnest. During the 2023 legislative session, Hochul and legislative leaders failed to come to an agreement on a comprehensive housing plan. Following the rejection of her ambitious housing plan last year, the governor proposed a more modest plan in her address this year. But lawmakers offered pushback on the governor's proposal because it did not include what they say is a key component of addressing the state's housing crisis. Uh, I was disappointed to not see any mention of tenant protections, uh, but I think that this is the beginning and not the end of the conversation. Assemblymember Patricia Fahey agreed with Senator Myrie that tenant protections are needed. And as chair of the Assembly Higher Education Committee, Fahey also expressed the need for increased tuition assistance for students attending SUNY and CUNY schools. Just yesterday, I launched a TAP, the tuition assistance program. We launched a, a Turn on the TAP campaign with at least a dozen or more of my colleagues, and we, are, we need to help youth. 70% of youth are telling us college is, the number one reason they're not going is college is not affordable. We used TAP, the tuition assistance program, used to help middle-income and low-income families. Now it's barely helping either of them. State Senator Jabari Brisport, a Democratic Socialist of America member, pointed to increased taxes on the wealthy as another important policy item this session, an initiative that several progressive lawmakers and advocates have been pushing as the state faces a projected $4 billion budget deficit. Yeah, uh, you know, the governor has some incredibly ambitious uh, ideas um, to, um, you know, move New York State forward. And I think the best way to strengthen it is to acknowledge that we still live in a state of haves and many have-nots and that new taxes on the rich are fundamental to an equitable budget. And Governor Kathy Hochul is expected to unveil her executive budget proposal in the next week. Legislative leaders and the governor will then head into negotiations to meet the April 1st budget deadline. We're joined in the studio with Raga Justin of The Times Union. Thank you so much for being here. Now, I wanted to get your takeaways on the address. Of course, this is, you know, a highly anticipated um, address at the start of the legislative session. So what were some of the biggest takeaways that you had? And was there anything that shocked you? Yeah, I think the, the governor spent a lot of time, you know, um, dedicated to her mental health treatment plan and, and how that's going to factor into her overall approach this year. 
um, you know, with that using mental health initiatives to address public safety concerns that a lot of New Yorkers have had recently. Uh, it's been a top of mind issue. Um, another top of mind issue, of course, has been housing. So she did, you know, we did see her dedicate some portion of her speech uh, to that crisis as well. Um, but one of the most prevalent things for a lot of residents has been, you know, the, the migrant crisis, uh, the influx of people who have come into our state um, and who have needed a lot of state resources, um, you know, as they as they work through adjusting to life in America. Um, and the governor did not make much mention of that in her speech at all. And so I think that surprised a lot of people. And then that became the narrative after the fact that there had been that omission. Right. And she has said that, you know, she plans to provide more details or a framework of the migrant crisis in her executive budget. And speaking with lawmakers after, you know, the common sentiment was the devil's in the details, right? More will be mm -hmm. revealed in the executive budget. So what are some of those details that we should expect? Right. I think you're exactly right. Um, you know, last week was about being vague but visionary. Yeah. Uh, and this next week is going to be about getting down to the brass tacks. Um, exactly. What are individual priorities? How are they going to be funded? Um, so we're going to see a lot more of those details next week. With that, with the migrant services, you know, uh, the big narrative this past year has been how much are we spending on housing? How much are we spending on health care? How much are we spending on legal aid? And so I think continue through this year, we're going to start to see those line items for how much those services are going to start costing the state. Um, another thing that's probably going to come into focus is, uh, you know, are some of the, the financial components of her housing plan. Uh, for example, um, you know, tax breaks for developers in the real estate industry. I think we're going to see how exactly that's going to play out. Yeah. And going back to housing, we know last year there was a big fight over housing. Right. The governor unveiled a very ambitious housing plan at the start of the legislative session that was met with a lot of pushback from suburban lawmakers. This time around, though, she unveiled a more modest plan. So what what was the strategy from your purview by the governor on this? Well, I think she's she's seen the opposition. Um, she's seen that it's it's not a good look politically, and that it was difficult finding you know compromises within the the Senate and the and the Assembly. And so I think this year it's a little bit more of okay, well, it's on our it's on your shoulders. I think she's right. pushing it off to the legislature a little bit and saying, you know, if you want to make something work, you're going to have to work with me on this. But in return, I'm giving you something that's a bit more moderate. And then heading into next week, when we'll hopefully get the executive budget, the state, of course, is projecting a $4 billion budget deficit. Mm -hmm. um, but it, the executive budget is just one part. It doesn't end there. Of course, there will be budget negotiations. Mm -hmm. But how do you see the projected budget deficit impacting the executive budget that the governor proposes? Yeah, I mean, I think the way that it's been described has been a year of caution. Um, Advocates will say that there's, you know, a multi-billion-dollar rainy day fund to cover their priorities. Um, but I think the fact that, you know, we likely won't have tax increases this year, um, that coupled with, um, you know, the the federal COVID era funding has dried up, mm -hmm. um, and we've got it's a big election year. There's a big election right. on the horizon, and so I think all those things combined mean that you know the, the governor and her budget officials are treading pretty carefully moving forward, um, and they're not likely to want to spend as much money. 
Yeah, I have that same feeling as yeah. well. You know, you brought up it being an election year. I think last year was the year for big, ambitious proposals, mm -hmm. but the governor seems to focus on more pocketbook issues, dinner um, table issues. So how do you see the legislature working with the governor, giving the reality that it is an election year? Like, what should their strategy be here? You know, I think talking to lawmakers, I'd heard a lot of cautious optimism. They're saying, oh, you know, we can, if we roll up our sleeves and get together, you know, we can we can get something done. And there's been these sentiments of bipartisanship and sentiments of really of compromise and working together. But, you know, that's kind of how every year starts and then it right. all sort of unravels throughout exactly. the budget negotiation process. Right. Um, so I think we'll see. I think, you know, they still have, if not the upper hand, they still both chambers have a really strong position. I mean, um, it's a supermajority. So if the governor wants something, she's going to probably have to work for it, you know, mm -hmm. with, with both the Senate and the Assembly. Yeah. And last year we had a very late budget. No one can forget that. Exactly. So how do you see things playing out this year? Do you think we'll get an on-time budget? Well, that's the big question. Exactly. That's the million, that's a multi-billion dollar question. <laughs> right. And yeah. I do not have a crystal ball, so I exactly. could not say. Um, yeah, I'm hopefully we get it on time. Uh, I have absolutely no clue how that's going to play out. But, you know, I, I think that everyone does say that they're always trying to hit that deadline. Yeah. Um, and that if they don't, it's because of something moving behind the scenes that we are not privy to. So I think the, the, the answer to that is just we'll see. Yeah. yeah. Well, there's a lot to look forward to Absolutely. in the executive budget and the upcoming budget negotiations. But we'll have to leave it here for now. So thank you so much for joining us. Of course. Thank you. And we were speaking with Vaga Justin of the Times Union. Lawmakers will continue to prioritize their legislative agendas as the session continues. An important aspect of those agendas includes the work of advocates who organize in support and sometimes against the policy issues at the Capitol. So to dive into all of the elements that go into organizing around a political cause, we'll be sharing a New York and organizing episode. Welcome to New York and Organizing. I'm your host, Raga Justin. Looking back earlier in this series, we talked about how voting is a crucial, easy, and impactful way to be civically engaged. But voting is far from everything. Sometimes elections can feel like they lack meaning. Maybe some of your local officials run unopposed. Maybe some politicians get voted in and then don't do what they say they're going to do. This is all to say, voting is foundational and incredibly important but it's just one of the many tools you have in your tool belt for affecting change. When people express concerns about deep-rooted issues in our society, you can't just simply say, go vote, and act like that is the cure-all to bad governance. This is why we wanted to focus on organizing as a way to be meaningfully, civically engaged beyond casting your vote. In this episode, we'll go over the concept of organizing, the work that goes into it, and ways you can get involved. Being a show that focuses on the impact of state and local government, it's fundamental to recognize that policies impact people's lives. They impact your life. But as an individual, it might not feel like you have the power on your own to challenge those in power. But that's where organizing comes in. We are going to start by highlighting community organizing. Folks at the Jonathan M. Tisch College of Civic Life at Tufts University describe community organizing as a set of methods, practices, and strategies that address public problems and also strengthen people's capacity to work together and exercise power. Organizers bring people together under a unifying idea or goal, so the group can utilize the collective efforts of folks to achieve the change that they want to see. 
Let's say a city's cost of housing skyrockets over a period of time. Residents of that city could get together to come up with ways to alleviate the issue, connect with other housing-focused organizations, and use their combined power to influence local policymakers and officials into passing policies that will alleviate housing costs. But what does the nitty-gritty of the organizing process look like? What work goes into getting people together and striving to achieve goals? We asked Tabitha Wilson, board president of a village, an Albany-based organization working to improve the lives of folks who live in the city's underserved neighborhoods. So I do think it starts with coming together, sort of naming the issue or pain point that we have as a collective, and this also, again, envisioning where do we want to be beyond this thing that's causing us pain or is a hurdle for us or is a challenge for us? What is our vision of how we want it to look? And then we have to bring in, um, you know, individuals who are invested in the process, whether it be your government officials or policy, whoever dictates said policy, bringing them along with the vision about this is causing us pain as a group. One of the things I try to bring to sort of like our collective, whatever we're working on, is for one, a timeline. <laughs> like, I'm always very big about, okay, when do we want to do this? When is this about to occur? So I think to me, that's a fundamental aspect of organizing is that it's very time bound. And you also have to know like all the logistical elements involved and then who's coming, why do they care? And what is our call to action for them are probably the major three points for me. Sometimes what we do to offset the fact that we're trying to get people out of their house at a, in a busy time um, to talk about things that are a little more mundane. Um, we often provide dinner, so then it's one less thing our, our community would have to worry about. Another um, element, for example, was an event we organized. We had childcare to ensure that, you know, that's one less thing that a constituency that has sort of these complications that are a result of like years of disenfranchisement, it's not continually disenfranchised. So instead of them coming to us and going through barriers, us knowing or trying to anticipate or knowing what the barriers may be and reducing them so more people, more voices can be involved and engaged. So this might be a lot to take in. Organizing is a lot of work after all. And if it's something you want to become involved in, where do you even start? Well, the good news is that if there is an issue on your mind that you want folks to get together to try and solve, odds are there's already folks out there trying to address it, and they could probably use additional strength in numbers. Here's Tabitha's thoughts on the best way to get started in organizing. For me and others, organizing tends to be around the personal. So things that impact you personally, whether it be, you know, poverty, uh, working moms, school board or school dynamic issues, uh, things of that nature. These sort of personalized issues do activate people. I would say stave off to do it on your own. Find out who's already organizing on the ground around said issues. There are a lot of groups that you can get on the ground for. Are more people having this issue I'm having? And can we speak to the folks that can make the change happen for us? Here in Albany, the capital of New York, community organizers, lobbyists, advocacy groups, and individuals are constantly heading to the seat of power to make their voice heard. When the legislature is in session, proponents of various causes will gather all over the Capitol, at the Million Dollar Staircase, in the halls, and in Assembly and Senate offices to list their concerns and put forward ideas for change. So if you want to see organizing and lobbying in action, the State Capitol of New York is the place to be. 
but let's focus a little on organizing and advocacy as it relates to places of business. This can come in multiple forms, with labor organizing being the most commonly known. Labor organizing often involves workers vying for changes in working conditions and compensation, and is how unions are formed. Due to the power of collective bargaining, union membership is often cited as helping to strengthen the middle class and combat wealth inequality. Business owners themselves have stakes to look out for as well. Considering how legislation and regulations can impact the function of a business, it makes sense that there would be efforts by businesses to have an influence on that process. If unions are the product of workers getting together to advance certain goals, trade associations are the product of businesses getting together to advance certain goals. Trade associations are often composed of members representing a specific industry, and the association works to advocate for change that is favorable for that industry. For example, ABC, Associated Builders and Contractors, is a trade association representing members of the construction industry that generally do not affiliate with unions, and it works to represent those members at various levels of government. We spoke with Brian Sampson, who is the president of ABC's Empire State Chapter, about how trade associations represent their members by looking to influence governance and policy. Businesses will join an association like ABC because they have to focus in their business and on their business. They don't always have time to focus on the legislative piece of what's going on, the, the things that get passed that really impact them. So they'll join an association like ABC. So what we do is it's it's a multi-pronged approach. You know, we have uh, three staff members here at the chapter that are very much focused almost solely on government affairs related work. Uh, a couple of us are registered lobbyists. We use the tools that are available to us. So a lot of that is, you know, what we'll often refer to as hand-to-hand -hand combat. We go to Albany, we sit in the senators and the assembly members' offices, we meet with their staff, we talk about these issues. So we'll do a lot of in-district office visits where we'll take our members in to meet with the senator or the assembly member and, and put a face to the issue. A lot of the work that we do is about setting the stage for the future, right? A law gets introduced, it's already there. You do a lot of this legwork so that the next bill is less bad. Business owners, workers, community members, folks of different backgrounds and interests all organize to try and influence change in their neighborhoods, industries, cities, and states. Where do you fit into this? What expectations do you have for your quality of life, your council person, your state senator? If the people we vote in are not achieving goals or making meaningful change in our lives, can we come together and work towards a better tomorrow? up to you and the will of the people to use power and influence to create the society that you want to see. That's all for today. Keep learning and I'll see y'all later. Now turning to another topic. As part of WMHT's series on stories and solutions on the opioid crisis in New York, we dive into the work of the Schenectady Cares Program. Since launching in 2019, the program has allowed those battling addiction to simply walk into the Schenectady Police Department to get access to drug treatment services. Here's that story. The Schenectady Cares Program is a program that started in 2019, um, and it's based on a kind of a collaboration with not only the Schenectady Police Department, but the Office of Community Services here at Schenectady County, New Choices Recovery Center, and also Catholic Charities. We started it based off of a program out of Massachusetts. And basically what was happening out there was a small agency, Gloucester Mass, 
opened their doors and said, if you're struggling with uh, substance use disorder, you don't know where to go, you can walk into the police department with complete amnesty and you can get connected to services that work for you there. So in 2019, we adopted the program here in the city of Schenectady. Um, and so now an individual can walk into the Schenectady Police Department and they can connect to services that are harm reduction based that range from safe syringes, for example, or it could be long -term, a long-term rehab center, whatever works for somebody. So in 2021, we kind of redefined Schenectady Cares again and opened up what would be considered phase two of it. We learned through partnership with the fire department where non-fatal overdoses occurred in our community. We can get it into an OD mapping system, which actually plots it for us and can really kind of show us where overdoses are occurring. So that's good for those services that are out there that may want to target areas of the city that really could use the services. And so now what we're doing is when we find a non-fatal overdose in the community, we're able to get that data into the hands of those individuals at New Choices and Catholic Charities. And those are peers and counselors there who then reach out to an individual after a non-fatal overdose. And they try to find services that work for them. I think phase two actually in many ways is even more impactful because this is bringing services to that individual. Since 2021, about 950 um, post non-fatal overdose referrals have gone out to Catholic Charities and New Choices. An overdose follow-up is when we go and knock on the door of an address where an overdose occurred and saying, you know, we understand that you had 911 here yesterday and there was an overdose. Can we help? Here's information. Here's Narcan. Um, would you like to talk to anybody? That kind of thing. We offer the full continuum of services, treatment, intervention, medication, counseling, uh, residential programs, as well as support for recovery. We want to see more police agencies out there adopting this kind of methodology towards, towards substance use in their community. But at the same time, I think we also have to look at collaborations. It needs to be a well-rounded approach. We can't put it all on public health. We can't put it all on our medics. We can't put it all on law enforcement, but together we could kind of carry this a little bit better. For more information on the work of the Schenectady Cares Program and to access all of our Opioid in New York episodes, you can visit our website. That's at nynow.org. That does it for this episode of New York Now. Thank you for tuning in and see you next week. Funding for New York Now is provided by WNET and by the New York State Education Department.